Hello, and welcome to the Real Change Anthology. My name is Lily Cushman, and I'm the producer for the Meta Hour podcast. In celebration of the paperback book release of Real Change this past November, we've put together an anthology of interviews to explore some themes from the book. These interviews originally aired in 2019 and 2020, with Sharon speaking to various folks about the intersection of mindfulness and loving-kindness practice with social action. We're delighted to reissue these conversations for you now as a new collection of episodes organized by the following themes. Agency and action, grief to resilience, activism as art, anger to courage, the interconnected world, and burnout to balance. For the sixth and final episode of this anthology, we're looking at the theme of burnout to balance. This episode features interview clips with Ellen Agler, Joelle Leone, Killian No, Sensei Joshin Burns, and Shelley Tegelski. Each guest shares their own unique tools for cultivating balance and equanimity when dealing with the inherent burnout that often accompanies social action work. Our first clip is from episode 137 of the Meta Hour, featuring Killian No. It originally aired October 12th of 2020. Killian is the founding director of Recovery Cafe, providing a beautiful, safe, drug and alcohol-free space and loving community to anchor members in the sustained recovery needed to gain and maintain access to housing, social and health services, healthy relationships, education, and employment. In this clip, Killian talks about the impact of migrating to Zoom during the pandemic and how that's affected her overall well-being, as well as the role that community plays in her ongoing ability to support others. Here's the clip. So how do you strike a balance in your own life? I mean, I I remember just the, the day I was there in the recovery cafe, how poignant it was, and one of your members had died, and dealing with sort of the grief of everybody and, and your own, and also the beauty which is in these people, which may be so overlooked by most people, and, and there you are witnessing it. And how do you find some balance? Well, I'll I'll be honest, it's been harder during this COVID-19 period to find that balance. I personally, I'm spending a lot more time on these Zoom calls and something about that. I'm grateful for Zoom. Don't get me wrong. I'm grateful for all these ways of connecting, but it doesn't feed me the way being face-to-face with someone does. And so I have found that it, um, it exhausts me in a, in a different way. And so one way that I, you know, have for years uh, sought to stay grounded and to have some, some balance is through my centering prayer, my contemplative practice. Mm -hmm. 
so that daily practices, I'm finding it's always been important, but I'm finding it's more important than ever. And then I, I find that movement, for me, physical movement is really important. I'm grateful that I can walk and I do. I get out and I walk a lot every day. Something about the movement really helps me stay grounded. I also find that being in a, a recovery circle myself, where I am both deeply known and loved, is uh, very grounding and helps me stay balanced. And I also, I think, yeah, I guess this gets a little bit into the subject of boundaries, but I also think it's really important to remember that no one person is needed by everybody. That, mm-hmm. you know, we, we often say at Recovery Cafe, everyone is deeply known but not everyone is deeply known by everybody, but everyone mm-hmm. is deeply known by somebody or a yes, this small group of people. So it helps me um, stay balanced to remember that everyone has a small group where they are being carried. I don't need to carry everybody. Mm-hmm. And um, that's not only true, it's very true that I don't need to carry everybody, but it's also, um, even if there's that temptation to think, oh, well, this particular person really needs me and only me, I even find that that's often not the case because if I need to pull back a little bit, I find that it creates some space for someone else to lean in a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess what I'm getting at is community is what helps me stay balanced because community does not depend on one individual. It, it depends on many individuals leaning in. That's a really beautiful and sort of different response. Like a lot of people would say and do say, I couldn't stand just the stimulation of the community anymore. You know, it was like altogether too much. And it's quite beautiful to think of that's the reassurance. That's actually the safety measure that it's not just up to me. And we can allow ourselves to get a break or get some rest or just enjoy something. I mean, that the, I have this part of my book about an activist friend of mine who was, I mean, he was brilliant. He was one of the first people doing that kind of work I'd ever met. And and he was also phenomenally depressed. I don't know, it's such a complex topic, but there was also a part of him that didn't feel it was okay to enjoy anything. Mm. And that, you know, there was too much pain in the world. He sort of didn't deserve, you know, the right. uh, the enjoyment. And yet the exhaustion of that is also very apparent. And, you know, that sense of looking for the joy, looking for like the joy in a community. And I would bet there's a lot of laughter sometimes in those groups, you know? Yes. Yeah. You know, that it's not, it's not something we should feel guilty about. It's not the same as, you know, the world saying only seek pleasure and avoid pain and cast aside anybody else who looks like they're in pain. It's really not that at all. 
No, I, I agree, Sharon. I, in fact, I would say that deep joy and deep suffering are often two sides of the same coin. That if we're just trying to avoid another person's pain, that doesn't really bring us joy. But when we enter fully into that other person's reality and we come to see the whole person and the part of that individual, as you said, who has who who can laugh and who can not take themselves too seriously. There is just real joy. There's joy in that. Yeah, that's beautiful. So I'm, I'm imagining like a range of feeling in a recovery group, the laughter, the relief, finding one another, maybe a lot of anger, a lot of grieving, mm-hmm. um, often a lot of loss has, you know, been experienced and uh it just feels like everything yes you know um definitely everything in my uh recovery circle a woman recently lost her mother her mother died and she she shared you know i i always believed the narrative that if my mother died, I would not be able to carry on. I would not be able to continue this recovery journey that I'm on. And that was what I believed. But she said, now I realize that I I have this deep grounding and I have this place of being held by others. And I realized that that narrative is just not true, that I am carrying on. And there was just a lot of joy in her discovery of that. So right smack in the middle of her worst pain of losing her mother, there was this joy in the discovery that she had resources and the tools to access those resources and the support of others that she needed. And uh, we all laughed. I mean, we all were not laughed at her, but we laughed with her mm-hmm. and, uh, at the sort of rewriting of the narrative. Our next clip is from episode 128 of the Meta Hour, featuring Sensei Joshin Burns. It originally aired on April 11th of 2020. Joshin is a Zen priest, teacher, activist, and the founder of the Bread Loaf Mountain Zen Community in Vermont. Joshin maintains a core practice of bearing witness to homelessness and has spent much of his career working for social change nonprofits in the areas of AIDS and HIV prevention, child welfare, and community-based philanthropy. In this clip, Joshin shares about his history of pathological altruism, a term coined by Roshi Joan Halifax, and how that led to his burnout. He also discusses the clarification of his inner motivation as a means to help him find greater balance once again. Here's the clip. You refer to yourself, your younger self, 
sometimes is having pathological altruism. Could you <laughs> explain the term and, and talk about your journey with that? Yeah. Well, you know, that's a term I got from Roshi Joan. Um, okay. And, you know, she is brilliant in teaching about these things. And um, there was a time when I think I was, you know, g giving is a good thing, right? Let's just start with that, like, basic premise. Giving of yourself, giving of your time, your resources, your skills. This is all a good thing. But I also think it's really easy to give from the wrong place, uh, at least it was for me. And, uh, you know, it's not that I was giving too much. I think this is sometimes what we get confused about. Like, sometimes we say, well, you know, pathological altruism means don't, don't give so much. You know, you're giving too much. And I don't know, that, that doesn't resonate with me so much. It's about why are you giving? Like, what's the deeper uh, impulse to give? You know, where is that coming from? So I think for me, even though I was working the AIDS epidemic and had all these kids, it can sound like what burned me out was busyness, you know, but it wasn't just the busyness of it. And it wasn't the depletion of being generous. Like if you're really generous, you're not really depleted by it. But what I was doing, I've come to realize was I was giving out of a place of trying to fix something in myself. Like I really felt underneath at all that something was lacking in me and that somehow I could make up for it by being a really good person. I identified it at one point as going back to being gay. Like I wanted to be accepted in the world and I wanted to be seen as the best little boy in the world. And so I became an overachiever and that was a much better thing to be thought of than a fag or a homo or all the things that I was terrified of being called out on. Right. So the only place for that kind of energy to go is into burnout, in my opinion. And so I, I was doing lots of good things. A lot, I was getting lots of support and, uh, you know, um, admiration from people who would say, oh, you're doing such virtuous things with your life. You know, you're working in AIDS and you're adopting these kids. But I came to realize it was coming from a place of lack inside me rather than coming from a place of wholeness. And I was trying to fill mm. some kind of bottomless pit of need in myself to be loved, you know? And that's been a hard one. That's been really hard because you get so much positive effort, you know, you're reaffirmed all the time for doing this good stuff. And the frenzy of doing good sometimes keeps us from it has kept me at times from looking deeply into what's what's going on here. What's motivating me? What am I trying to do? What story am I telling myself? Is it is it true? And for me, it's another place where practice has helped me a lot. The next clip is from episode 130 of the Meta Hour, featuring Joelle Leon. It originally aired on August 24th of 2020. Joelle is a performer, author, and storyteller who writes and tells stories for Black people. Born and raised in the Bronx, Joelle specializes in moderating and leading conversations surrounding race, masculinity, mental health, creativity, and the performing arts, all with love at the center of his work and purpose. 
In this clip, Joelle and Sharon discuss being able to hold greater complexity and contradiction, such as the simultaneous experiences of joy and sorrow, and what that has to do with creating greater balance in our lives. Here's the clip. I hear that and what I think about too, and it's been coming up in a lot of conversations I've been having, like that balancing act of being cognizant and fully aware that yes, there was trauma here, there was pain here, there was loss, grief, suffering, all, all these things. And there's also, again, like the word, I, I feel like that kind of keeps coming up outside of ability is also opportunity and responsibility, mm-hmm. right? Like there's also an opportunity here. You know, um, for me, the goal has really been like, Part of my creative practice has really become like dismantling systems, um, systems that oppress marginalized people. And mm-hmm. we tend to look at government systems directly as opposed to like, how is patriarchy contributing to our oppression? How is misogyny contributing to our oppression? How is the way we talk about masculinity, the way we talk about race, the way we even talk about art or don't talk about art in the ways it can heal? And, and how do we kind of dismantle the old ways of thinking? But part of that is being able to see there is an opportunity amidst the trauma and the grief to to show up in, in a way that is most aligned with where we want to go. And also in, in what you're talking about is like not a fixed view of that either, right? It's, I can see maybe the uh, despair and, and the pain and the angst in this space and period, but I also know that there's something that lives outside of that that can be joyous. And I can hold space for both of those things mm-hmm. even without taking away from the energy that those things bring, you know, and, and not making light. Cause I think sometimes it's easy for us to think if I'm choosing to be happy in this space, I'm just being ignorant of the pain that's, mm-hmm. that's happening alongside of it. It's like, that's not the case at all. That's really beautiful. You reminded me of this part of my book where I had been invited down to Florida to the Parkland community to mm-hmm. teach. And this was the first time that I was there and, um, there was a young woman who was not at the school the day of the shooting, but her mother was. She was a teacher, and she was fine, but they didn't know that, of course, for many hours, and it was devastating anyway. And and she said to me, you know, I'm having a really strange experience here in this day of, of practice because she said it's really wonderful, and and it feels really incredible, and I know the only reason it's happening is because that horrible thing happened I don't know how to get over that to really appreciate this. And I said, you know, I don't think you get over it. I think you hold them both. Mm. Yeah. You know, that somehow we have to have space for both to be true because they are both true. Yeah, yeah. And and I think sometimes we do we do a poor job of holding, you know, and holding and not clinging, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like, because it's easy to fall into the trap of clinging, even the good stuff. And, you know, I, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. But the idea of like we we hold on to the things and then we try to not hold on to the pain, right? It's like I don't want to yeah. be with that. And it's like, well, exactly to your point, two things can be true at the same time. You know, like Trump can be an asshole and Trump can <laughs> also have some like based on his um niece's uh uh yeah. you know, like he could there could be some trauma attached to that. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, yeah. and I right, and I think it's and, and it's something I've been trying to communicate to people so often, Sharon. It's when we talk about forgiveness and people tend to think forgiveness is about lack of accountability. And for me, it's like, no, forgiveness means 
you're holding people directly accountable and responsible for the behavior. And what that means is then I can still hold two truths together. Like you could have done something that's very shitty, but then also I can recognize maybe you put together a, a book sale drive for the kids in the community who didn't have them. You know, like that people get to be more than one thing and these situations get to be more than one thing too, which is what I think you're also talking about, which I would love for us to kind of start believing in more because then we wouldn't be so hard on ourselves, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true because we're more than one thing ourselves. Right. Yeah, like even just like chemically, you know, like we are made up of so many different things and it's easy to kind of start focusing in on either the things we we despise most about ourselves or the things that we think, quote unquote, need the most work, as opposed to just being able to hold those things and not cling to them in a way that allows everything to live in that space without taking away, they don't take away from each other. So great. Our next clip is from episode 141 of the Meta Hour, featuring Ellen Agler. It originally aired November 16 of 2020. Ellen serves as the CEO of the End Fund, a private philanthropic initiative working to see an end of the suffering caused by five neglected tropical diseases that affect 1.7 billion of the world's most impoverished people. Her book, Under the Big Tree, was released in January of 2019. In this clip, Ellen and Sharon speak about how to develop a managed ego and how the spaciousness of equanimity can keep the ego in check for greater long-term balance and success. Here's the clip. Another thing that Jeff Walker, our mutual friend, <laughs> says, I think I might quote him in the book saying this, but when he talks about systems and that kind of collaboration, his phrase is a managed ego. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's such an interesting, because not no ego. Can you actually get rid of ego? Is it just keeping it in check, observing it, observed ego, disconnected a bit from ego, I feel like, especially in social change work, um, you know, it's very easy to get your ego or your identity, your sense of self so wrapped up in your work that when things are tough with work or you have everything come to a crushing halt because of COVID or the, the complexities of doing your humanitarian work and trying to reconcile with issues around racial justice as we are, you know, are right now, or the amount of mental health issues that are rampant in our space. It's hard to, if you have too much ego involved and your organization is struggling, if you don't have that distance, you can really start to think that I'm the problem. And somebody said to me this week, they were talking about markets, actually. They were, you know, one of the, one of our donors who said, you know, in 2007, I made more money than I thought I could in a lifetime. 2008, I lost more money than I ever thought possible. All I did was cry all the time and feel devastated and feel like a loser. And truth is, even that is arrogant. That's like an ego attachment. Like I'm, because the opposite's not true. When everything goes well, it's not all because of me. When everything goes badly, it's not all because of me. Like where's the spaciousness? And he's seeing the markets doing terribly right now. And he's like, I just, through having a contemplative practice, I just feel so much more easeful about it. Like this too, we will ride this storm. It's not all about me. Yeah, I feel like this work in social change, it's so important and it it can be all consuming because it's never done. 
And if you don't find some tools to have longevity with it, you know, these amazing pictures of Angela Davis, you know, just think, how can you be a lifelong activist and keep making change as you ride these different waves of history and keep working to bend the arc of justice towards good? So there is something about mindfulness practice that sort of helps create sustainable social activists. Here's a quotation from you that I used in the book. It's okay to pause before responding. It's okay to just be with what is and see how it might be a different what is if you just wait a day or two Hmm. and try to access wisdom and see a deeper truth that may be what really needs to be responded to. So it's such a valuable aspiration and one that can be very difficult, especially I think when you're faced with a kind of a sense of urgency about helping or faced with pretty difficult circumstance like you often are in your work. So it seems like it would take a kind of inner resource or almost stamina to be able to pause in what seem like higher stakes situations. And this is where it is interesting, the intersection with science, just like how does your brain work? When are you, when are you flooding? When do you, when is your amygdala turn on this fight, flight, freeze? And just remember, that's not the place you want to respond from. And when a million things are coming at you, you have the ability to like slow the movie down. Like just because someone needs a decision immediately doesn't mean you have to make a decision immediately. I definitely have recognized like sometimes just getting more spaciousness around it, finding your own energy of mind and body to get into a more expansive place and see broader. Cause it really is when you're stressed, it is like tunnel vision, literally and figuratively. And it's very difficult to keep the wide view. And I feel like as you grow in leadership positions in this space, you just have to hold so many different viewpoints together and figure out what are the nuances and what's being said, but what's not being said and how to reconcile and support the communities that you're trying to work with. So it's funny to hear yourself quoted to you. I (laughs) I was like, oh, I said that. That sounds really good. (laughs) I need to remember that. (laughs) Our final clip today is from episode 121 of the Meta Hour, featuring Shelley Tegelski. It originally aired May 4th of 2019. Shelley is a mindfulness teacher, author, and grassroots community organizer who focuses much of her work on supporting underserved communities, community organizations, nonprofits, and schools. She's deeply involved in offering trauma-informed healing practices to communities that have been affected by gun violence and mass shootings. Her first book, Sit Down to Rise Up, was released in September of 2020. In this clip, Shelley and Sharon speak about how we can continue forward after experiencing tremendous loss or burnout, and the way that meaning can play a role in our recovery. Here's the clip. And one of the things you've done that I just found so impressive and inspiring amidst all the rest is uh, when you were on that panel and helped organize that panel at Wisdom 2.0, I guess uh, a little over a year ago in yeah. California, and uh, panelists were you, and who else was on that panel? So Fred Guttenberg, whose daughter, Jamie Guttenberg, was shot at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. 
And then Ivy Seamus, who was a teacher at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. She actually took a sabbatical this year. Her last student that was in her class, the class that got shot into, uh, had graduated. So she felt comfortable taking, you know, some time off. And um, she had two students that were that were murdered in her classroom and several that were injured. And one of the students that was in her classroom was Alea Eastman, who was one of the panelists as well. Uh, so it was interesting to hear both of their perspectives of the experience because they were both in the same room, but had two different experiences as a student and as a teacher. And, um, and then there was um, Adam Alhanti, who was also a student at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, but wasn't in the 1200 building, but became one of the most active uh, March for Our Lives students. Well, one of the incredible moments for me in that panel, which I think about a lot these days, because for so many people right now is a time of great grief, really. You know, I almost feel like collectively, well, there are phases, of course, and everyone's having their own experience, but there was the anxiety and now there's the grief. Yeah. And I remember Fred talking about finding a way to go on, to survive and, and to contribute to the world, to life. And, and he said that every day he looks for meaning. Mm -hmm. He looks for some sense of meaning. And the person who counseled him was Joe Biden, yeah. which is you know, kind of incredible. I remember him looking at David Seamus, who was moderating the panel, uh, who had worked in the Obama White House. And, and he said, you know, who really, really helped me was Joe Biden. Thanks so much for listening today. This concludes the Real Change podcast anthology. And we hope you've enjoyed this special series. The paperback edition of the book Real Change is now available wherever books are sold. You can also find ebook versions, hardcover versions, as well as Sharon reading the audiobook. You can learn more at SharonSalzberg.com. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, happy, healthy, and may you live with ease.